Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Emerging Ease, where we will focus on unraveling the difficulties in the midst of our journey and move toward forward progress. This program is not meant to replace any form of therapy, and you are encouraged to seek out a mental health professional if necessary. Hello again. Welcome to Emerging East. I'm your host, Keisha. You are tuned in to the Bachelor News Radio Network. Um, as we continue our discussion today about generational trauma, make sure you feel free uh, to call in at 646-929-0130 with any questions or comments or send questions to the chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash LA-Bachelor. Um, also, you can send any questions to emergingease at gmail.com um, if you have any during the week or any comments during the week. Um, I also want to put out there that um, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please email us at labachelor four zero at gmail dot com. It's very easy and affordable to advertise, so look into that. Might as well reach out to other people and get your uh, products and information out there. All right, so if you tuned in last week, we began talking about generational trauma, also intergenerational trauma is the name for it, or transgenerational trauma. Basically, it's the things that we pass down through our actions, through our interactions with others, as well as it has been proven that trauma can impact our DNA. So until we do something to address the trauma, imagine passing that down to not just your children, but their children and their children, and then the ripple effect that we talked about in the communities that we're in, as well as other social interactions. So today, um, I want to talk uh, begin our uh, discussion with trauma as it impacts the parent-child relationship. Now, the thing with our parent-child relationship is many of us um, make so many promises about uh, what they're going to be like and what they're not going to be like when they have children. I'm never going to speak to my children like this. I'm never going to interact with my children like this. I'm never going to put my children on punishment. I'm never going to spank or whoop my children. All the, And then we find ourselves um, out of just a moment's notice, like, gosh, I said or I did that exact thing that I said I was not going to do. Many of us keep these cycles going in our interactions with our children because we never fully identify how we were impacted by those actions, why we didn't like them. I mean, who likes, you know, being on punishment or being on restriction or uh, getting a spanking? But why did you decide to say, as a child even, I don't ever want to do that to my children? Even yelling. Some people were very deeply traumatized by yelling in their family because sometimes that yelling came along with uh, statements or terms that were very demeaning. And so, therefore, their thing was, I'm never going to say that to my child. I'm never going to yell at my child. And they don't identify and process why it was hurtful to them. So then in the moment uh, when something comes up and it triggers that response, 
we never identify, like, why was that hurt for me? Why do I not want to pass that on to my children? So being mindful, start to think about that. Also, something that can help in this parent-child relationship after you find that you've done that very thing that you said you weren't going to do, talk to your child about it. After you process why it was hurtful to you and explain to them, hey, um, I apologize. That's something that people have a difficulty doing saying, I apologize to their children. I told myself I was never going to do that, and in this moment, I did it. Um, The reason it impacted me so for me to say that I'm never going to do this like this is because of whatever the explanation is, and I do not want to give that over to you. Now, there's so much in that statement and those statements like that that help keep generational trauma from moving forward. For one, the apology. Many of us have never gotten an apology from those that have hurt and or traumatized us during our childhood, especially from our parents. Because I don't know about y'all, but if you're raised like me, and uh, what I said is what I said, and you still have to walk it off. <laughs> and so you never get that, that kind of closure. So in life, when you're trying to seek that closure in all kinds of other ways, It never fully happens because that person never took accountability for the way their interactions could have and or did impact you. So being mindful. It's not saying when you tell your child uh, you apologize. It's not saying I'm wrong, I don't know what I'm doing. What it's saying is I'm not perfect. I accept that I'm not perfect. And because I'm not perfect, let me go back and talk to you about what I did and how it could be an impact on you because I know how it impacted me. Um, Many things uh, we also pass down to our children uh, may include the way we interact with other people. That can be very hurtful, harmful, and horrible, the things that they hear us say, because other than ourselves, our children are usually with us the majority of the time. If you're a very active uh, parent, your children are with you a lot. So they get to how you interact with people who are not nice to you, how you respond to gossip about others, how you contribute to gossip about others, how um, you interact with people who do things that are hurtful, how you respond to an apology, if you give apologies, if you address how you can be an impact to others. So be mindful of that. And um, they also look at what we accept in significant relationships whether you're dating or you're married, um, your sons and daughters are looking at what, how do my parents interact, whether it's mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad. I, I don't even care about that situation at this point. But how do they interact? Does someone uh, use manipulation? Does someone say things that are hurtful to the other knowingly and they maintain it? Does the other one cower? Does the other one snap back and say something else hurtful and therefore it continues a barrage of negative words? What's going on? Think about all of that. Even though your children may not be standing there eye to eye watching you, they hear you. They feel the tension in the house even. So being mindful of that. Um, Generational trauma um, can contribute to... um, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, before I get to the psychiatric problems, I wanted to say one more thing about the parent-child relationship and the impact of generational trauma. All the things that were um, taboo to discuss, taboo to even 
act as if you thought about it, that can be traumatic as well because what it does is it can cause people to feel like something is wrong with them if they have a question about it. I uh, was speaking with a colleague probably a little over a week ago, and we were discussing how there's been such an increase in people that have sought out therapy since COVID, which is, that's fine, do it. If you need it, do it. But then so many people that are in uh, the African-American, in the Asian, in the uh, Latinx, um, um, Islander, all the folks that are identified as minorities, pretty much, how so many people from those uh, cultural sets have begun to come out to discuss sexual concerns because it's seen as taboo. You don't talk about it. You don't say anything to your children about sex or sexual um, preference or anything like that because then they're going to be curious and they're going to go out and investigate. That is a lie, and I said it. That's a lie. Talk to your children. Answer their questions. If you don't know, say, I don't know, and go research it together so both you and your children have the information to discuss. Please, please, please do that. The reason I say do that is because when something is taboo in your household, that means throughout life you're going to think you're abnormal because you think about it, because you're curious about it, because you have a question about it. And so, therefore, instead of saying, well, it's taboo, I can't do it, you sneak and do it. And then you sneak and end up in situations that are hurtful even more. And then as life goes on, you continue to uh, maintain and hold on to the belief that something is wrong with you, something is going on that I need to be ashamed of. And therefore, it it does contribute to a damaged self-esteem, very low self-confidence, and some difficult social interactions because for some reason, Uh, excuse me, not for some reason, for that reason you've ingrained in yourself, you begin to feel inadequate. And there's absolutely no such thing as an inadequate person. It's situations that contribute to us believing that because of something either taboo or we were sold it because of, of speaking or asking a question. So be mindful. Keep that communication open, please. Any question that comes to you from your children, um, be adult enough to say, I don't know everything and I'm okay with this, so let's figure it out together. Now, if you're putting in your values as well uh, during the investigation or the research, I should say, about whatever the topic is, that's one thing. But telling them don't ever ask me that or shunning them or cutting them off, that, that's, that can hurt them very deeply. So being mindful of that. Um, unresolved psychiatric problems can lead to uh, relational uh, trauma and turmoil and discord. This can come through generational trauma, okay? Generational trauma in this aspect, especially when it's talking about relationships, is you've never seen what would be identified as a healthy relationship. Matter of fact, you probably didn't even know until you became an adult, maybe even a middle-aged adult or an older-age adult, that the relationships you did see were highly toxic and unhealthy. Um, Maybe there was physical abuse, verbal abuse, emotional abuse uh, going on. And with those things that were going on, you thought, well, shucks, that's how uh, men and women interact. 
that's how uh, people interact with um, how they're supposed to interact, how what's appropriate. It's never, never appropriate to uh, see someone be demeaned, to hear someone be demeaned, to see someone knowing that they're hurting someone do that, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. Um, it's never healthy for someone to lessen themselves or push themselves down in order to make another person feel as if they're adequate to feel as if uh, someone is dominant over them. A relationship, uh, a healthy relationship, you're working together. There's no such thing as a person that's uh, dominant and a person that is pushed down, okay? Now, mind you, I want to point out that I did not use the word submission on purpose because submission is something else. Submission does not happen in toxic relationships. That's dominant. Submission only happens in healthy relationships where you submit to one another because you trust each other, you love each other, you know this person has your best interest at heart. And submission is natural um, when those things are in place, when it's healthy, when it's safe. Submission only happens in safe. So if it's not a safe situation, then you know that's dominant. Talk to your children about that, especially if there's um, any... Uh, toxic relationship they've seen, whether in the family or through friends, if you were in a toxic relationship, if you are in a toxic relationship, especially um, discussing, you know, how to get out of those situations with your children, talk openly about those things, very, very openly. Um, The psychiatric problem that can come from that is um, the belief that I'm not intelligent enough to do things on my own because a person that is abusive, especially mentally, emotionally, heck, even physically, will always feel that um, you don't think well, you can't do things, you're insufficient, um, any and everything you do is inappropriate, uh, you don't listen well, um, and you can't help yourself and no one else can help you. So therefore, it brings on possible depression, anxiety, other psychiatric symptoms, um, and continues to trickle down because if your children watch you go through this uh, interaction and they see other people in their uh, immediate family or even in the neighborhood going through this, they begin to feel like this is what it's supposed to be, and therefore they will continue to adopt those coping mechanisms that may be contributing to the anxiety, to the depression, to the other psychiatric symptoms. Um, also look at uh, another sign of generational trauma, trauma is uh, developing a content attitude of how things are. Now, this means that there's never any challenge to the things that are going on that are negative, that are negatively impacting you and negatively impacting others, especially your children and or grandchildren. Be mindful that when we begin to settle as people, then we think into a comfortable, whether I always give the picture of thinking about that has a seat. And so you sit in this seat that's in a cactus, not because it's comfortable physically, but because that's all I know. I don't know anything else. 
This is the way it's supposed to be, even though it's very uncomfortable and I don't like it and I do want something to change, I just sit here. So that is uh, developing that contentment uh, with how things are. In that, that that contentment continues to trickle down. I think about this family um, that I was, uh, actually, I call it a blessing. Every client I, I meet, I consider it a blessing because not only do I help them learn about themselves, but I learn something about me and how people interact. And in this family, the great-grandmother, because it was the great-grandmother, the grandmother, uh, the daughter, and then her child was coming along. And I want to say her child was a teenager. Anyway, in those four generations, it was so blatantly obvious that there was such a cycle of contentment that no one had any drive to do anything. There was never a push. They all lived in the same home. No one ever had the drive to say, you know what, I like my own space, even though they did not like the tight quarters because it's four generations of people in a home. Imagine, you know, the more people you put in a house, you know, the tighter it gets. So um, before I go on with that story, let me interject here that um, – I want you to make sure that you listen this Friday from 5 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, when the featured artist will be Jodeci. Um, Also, every Sunday through Friday from 8 p.m. to midnight, listen to Whisper Softly on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I wanted to make sure I put that in there because, oh, my gosh, the, the music is wonderful. So make sure you listen to that. Um, but in that family that I was discussing, there was such a, a contentment that no one had any drive to do anything. Um, the grandmother had held, I think, one job. Um, the great-grandmother was a housewife or a home mother, I should say, because she never married. Um, the daughter had had one job that lasted three months, and the youngest that was coming along had no desire to do anything in school. Now, before you assume, I say they were on social services. That was not the case. They had this knack for coming across people um, that were willing to give them things, willing to pay their bills. And I'm not saying, you know, like men or anything like that. People, period, men, women, uh, people they came across, they interacted with people in such a way that, I mean, it was the people in the community that really kind of contributed to their lifestyle and was able to maintain their lifestyle how it was. So, you know, their bills were paid, they had food, they weren't reliant on social services because they had a, a negative belief about that, that that means you're, you're shiftless. But the thing is, they never uh, wanted to do anything past that or to live past that. So think about, you know, what areas of contentment do you identify with yourself? And how do, have you seen that in your family? How have you then also been passing that down to, to your children? Um, there's always going to be the question of what do I do to move forward from here. What do I do out of this uh, traumatic mindset, 
and uh, passing along these traumatic encounters. What do I need to do? First and foremost, you've got to identify what the trauma was. Now, remember, with trauma, it's what you identify as traumatic. Some people um, have a memory of uh, going to the skate ring and falling in front of everybody, and that was very traumatic to them. So then they become very mindful and uh, cautious about their interactions in public because that feeling of embarrassment came on so tough that they were traumatized by it. Some people's trauma may be something as much as um, a person that they looked up to speaking to them in a negative way that made them feel horrible about themselves and their ability to do things. So looking at that, identify what your trauma is. Now, I encourage people when they're looking at this, don't break down a whole bunch of, uh, like you got a list of 100 things that are traumatic, that were traumatic. Start with a small grouping because the small successes and those small uh, times that you overcome, you're able to then face the other traumas that you may identify in your life. I also encourage you, as, as it says uh, on the outro for the show, seek professional uh, services. Find a licensed therapist, whether it's an LMFT, an LPC, um, find a licensed professional therapist in your area to work through these things with. Another thing I want to tell you, too, before we continue is when you're seeking out these services, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of give you a heads up. Many therapists are now uh, going to virtual, okay? So be ready for that. And many times I've had a few clients in the past uh, two weeks, and I've told them I'm only doing virtual. They'll say, well, no, I don't want services. I want to be face-to-face. The thing is, with that, I totally get it because face-to-face interaction is wonderful. It's wonderful for the therapist. It's wonderful for the client because you get so many uh, cues and clues about uh, social interactions and how that person processes things face-to-face. But it's not to say that you cannot get those same results virtually. Therapists do not want to be exposed to whatever this is out in the community, out in the world, just like they don't want to expose you to anything unnecessarily. It, um, the hope is that this is only a short-term thing, that we can get this under control in some kind of way in this uh, society, in this world that we live in. But take that opportunity even virtually because the other benefit of vir- virtual is you get to be in the comfort of your own home. So you're actually in, there, in your safe space or in your happy place, hopefully it's your happy place, or whatever place you choose to go to sit and do your virtual session, you can create the environment you want. So if you choose to sit outside uh, on a park bench or sit outside in your yard or um, go sit at the lake, whatever, you can do that on virtual session and be able to process things in a place that you find peace in. So I encourage you, even if you don't like virtual, I get it, I totally understand, Seek it out as it is mostly what's being uh, offered at this time by many people. Um, also, it gives you more uh, ability to see the therapist's face as well as they get to see yours uh, without sitting in a room with a mask on that's muscling your voice, 
and muffling the communication because it's limiting the ability to see facial responses. Um, I do have a question um, that came in. Uh, Gail said that she was raped by a family member as a child and was diagnosed with PTSD. She is a mother of two little girls under seven. What steps besides therapy do I take to avoid putting my trauma on them? Okay, Gail, speak to you from the therapist side, and I'll speak to you from the personal side, because this is something that is very, very, very important to to address, because so many people have been uh, raped, sexually assaulted, or molested at some point in their life, and then they have children, and they, we, because we, <laughs> I'm in that same boat with you, we are wondering, like, how do I not uh, pass this on to my children? One thing I do want to say um, as a therapist is talk to your children. Do not, not talking to them, not especially at this age, since they're both under the age of seven, about what physically happened to you, but talk to them about boundary setting, okay? Talk to them about feeling safe in their communication with you. Talk to them about non-judgmental communication. Um, explain to them that regardless of someone else's actions, it's never their fault, and they have a safe place to be able to talk to you and or whoever is in their support circle that you um, have allowed in their support circle. Opening up and telling children it's okay to communicate about any and everything is so important one, in their safety, as well as not allowing trauma to go forward. Because many times, some people who are assaulted in a sexual manner either feel ashamed, they blame themselves immediately, um, they then are forced to be around, possibly be around the perpetrator, and they have to play nice. They have to sit there and smile. They have to take pictures. They have to still interact in some kind of way with uh, that person, especially if it's a close family member that either lives nearby or comes over often because there's such a shame that uh, when they've heard other people talking about, oh, well, that little girl is fat, or, you know, if she hadn't had that on, then it wouldn't have happened to her. If she hadn't have done whatever, whatever, they wouldn't even look at her. It is never the fault of the person that's assaulted. So having those types of communications with your daughters is very important. With your sons, even, is very, very important. Open up communication. Allow your children to understand that regardless what they tell you, you are in a safe place. Um, even at an early age with my daughters, I let them know, regardless what you tell me, I'm never going to blame you, for one. I'm not going to be upset with you because I need you to tell me the truth. And we will address it from there. Because my job as mom is to make sure you're safe. And so when you let me know what's going on, then I can make sure that I do my best to make sure your environment is safe, the people you're around are safe. If you don't like being around somebody, you let me know, and I will handle it, okay? I won't ever bring you in and say, well, my, my child said, hey, this, you know, because that brings more stress and more tension. Also, let them know that um, if anyone does interact with them appropriately, 
Do not allow that person to cause them to feel like it was their fault in any way. They cannot control other people. Only those people can control their choices to interact with. So that's the first thing. As far as with the diagnosis of PTSD, I hope that at least you, Gail, um, are going to someone professional to start to address those things and uncover anything that could possibly be triggers. And then you and your therapist can identify if uh, those triggers, how they're possibly interacting with uh, your parenting, and if there's anything that is subtle that's passed down. Because I want to say, before we kind of wrap up, with trauma, when it's passed down, it's not like someone is passing you a letter and they're saying, okay, so this is my trauma. I wrote everything down. Here it is. Read it, absorb it, and live in it. No one does that, okay? So when we pass down trauma or when trauma is passed to us, it's done in very subtle ways. And I will say I am very encouraged, very, very encouraged with the generation of folks that are now seeking out therapy, very encouraged. Because what they're saying is, in my looking at my life, I am now able to look at and recognize things that were subtly passed down to me, how they have impacted me in a negative way, and I do not want those to push forward in my life or the lives of others. So I'm thankful for where we are in this generation of enlightenment, of awakening, whatever you choose to address it as, it is a uh, time of change, okay? So um, I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope that today's discussion has been and will continue to be helpful to you in your uh, life's journey. Remember, if you have any, any questions, please feel free to email them to emergingease at gmail.com. You've been listening to Emerging Ease with Keisha on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate you for taking such a time as this to participate in your personal improvement with Emerging Ease. I'm Keisha, your host. Remember that in everything, there's an opportunity to learn and grow. If you are experiencing a difficult time, please reach out to the National Crisis Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. And I look forward to hearing from you next week on Emerging Ease with Keisha.
and welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, of course, uh, IBM TV, Big Mind Entertainment. L.A. Bachelor, we thank you for joining us. As always, you could be doing anything else, uh, but you decided to be a part of uh, this broadcast, and we uh, certainly appreciate it. I uh, want to bring in my uh, special guest, always good to have the doctor making house call. Uh, he is a, a professor, of course, of uh, of uh, uh, dealing with uh, HBCUs and the economics of it at Texas Southern, amongst other things. He's a talk show host as well. He's Dr. Kenyatta Cavill. And Doc, always a pleasure to have you on, sir. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I I wanted to touch on a couple of things. We we talked about how, you know, I call them the five families uh, were going to uh, be impacted (laughs) is be impacted with this uh, new image uh, compensation and, and how HBCUs could benefit. It, it's going to be a lot of money, maybe a little bit. And the future of this uh, with the NCAA. Um, now we find out that the ACC, the Big Ten, and the Pac-12 haven't announced this alliance, uh, basically saying these 41 world-class institutions are together and have a collaborative approach surrounding uh, this evolution of of college athletics and and scheduling. Um, It's been supported by the president, but, you know, when you look at some of the comments from, say, the ACC um, and now the Pac-12, there's some perceived with cautions with this. So, so first, if you could talk about opponents of, of this and and how it could work for those 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 big PWIs and and wh- how how it would affect HBCUs in general, in particular, some HBCUs that have joined some of these um, uh, smaller PWIs. Uh, that's that's a nice framing of what is taking place in so many ways. Um, when you talk about these super conferences, as they talk about now with the SEC and previously Power Five, they like to use the term autonomous, which tells you a little bit of everything about them, meaning that they have the power to essentially make their own decision. And obviously, they, if they have the power to do that, they're going to make it the decision that is more um, in an advocacy for themselves which is where the trouble can lie if you are proponents of other institutions, including uh, HBCUs like I am. So with that being said, uh, when we first take this back to the SEC, moving to the Super Conference with with 16 teams, including two well-branded institutions, top 10 institutions, and just about every uh, imaginable component that you can work with with Texas, and Oklahoma, things seem to really start to look like it could go in many different directions. Since then, we found out recently this week uh, that, you know, kind of came out last week that was moving this, this thing that they're calling this alliance. And they don't even know what that is yet. Right. They built to it. It is simply an agreement, as we can tell now, not even a contractual agreement uh, of all things amazingly, um, is that will work together in some type of format to make sure that the interests of those three schools 
outweigh maybe the interest of SEC. And you could tell in my conversation that I haven't even talked about the Big 12, right. uh, which is hanging for dear life in so many different ways, uh, how they will be able to move forward. And so you also just the announcement today that the Pac-12 is going to stand packed at least for the near future in regards to not going to expand and look at taking some of the schools from the Big 12 that I just mentioned, uh, particular people are thinking maybe they would look at getting into Texas and into the central time zone, but at least what was stated with one of the reasons they didn't do that is because now with the alliance, they have the autonomy to play and create rival matchups during the season with the conferences. Well, you say, well, hold on, wait a minute. They play each other in non-conference games. This is true. But now it seems like they're going to formalize and create said matchups with some of the more branded institutions in the three aforementioned uh, conferences that I spoke of. So now the next step, the next evolution that we're going to look at is what is the Big 12 going to do? Well, obviously institution or conference that's out there is what has been marketed as the next six of the power sixes they like to call them in some iteration and form is the Atlantic. I mean, is the American conference. And so there's going to be an intriguing thought process. Are the institutions going to leave the American and go to the big 12 as they try to fill back up to 10, 12 institutions, whatever they think actually uh, beneficial to them in terms of the television contract. Um, but the problem you have with that, remember, this is not the first time that the fact, I mean, the Big 12 looked at expanding. A couple of years ago, uh, when them in Missouri left, uh, they looked at expanding and brought in West Virginia um, to try to do some things. And then they looked at whether they're going to expand back out to maybe 12 at the time, they decided not to do it. But this is why. Because people, they can play in the two divisions and play the championship game, and they figured out a way to play the championship game with the 10-team model. But the reason that they were not looking at expanding with American teams, i.e. U of H, uh, or there were some of the teams out there, even BYU, um, in terms of looking, they could find a way to try to get uh, into the Big 12. It didn't work at that time. But they said – institutions didn't do enough to expand the television pack it went back up well this is the dirty secret one of the reasons um, leases out there and makes the most sense of why Oklahoma and Texas left uh, to the SEC is because the vision networks were not all that excited about extending the track for the big 12 especially immediately so they wanted to wait to industry standard was doing. So there was concern by Oklahoma and Texas that that's, that they may even lose more of the war that was taking place in financial windfall that is coming to big team, uh, most recently the SEC in terms of what that looks like with the AC 12 just behind them. And so that's why you have all this evolution. Well, this is part of your question, and hopefully that wasn't too long in regards to really getting work to your listeners of what is taking place out there, you say, well, how does this impact HBCUs 
and other historically white colleges at level. Well, there is certainly a trickle-down effect. Well, the question that you have now is have what you call these money games, where you have the FCS teams, and we've heard with HBCUs playing some teams and setting up some games at the 12 conferences, as well as SEC and different matchups. Well, alliance is going to take place. It's less likely that these money games will be. That is one way that it can be a challenge for FCS pro. Historically, white colleges in these FCS programs are historically in the FCS program. The benefit that could take place is now up the treasure chest, and there's a way for the FCS HBCU programs that have a great culture to manifest itself in the market in such a way that it can push the envelope even further about the in the niche market that HBCU programs have associated with the culture. And that's what you see to some degree that's taking place with we had the celebration extension that went on for six additional years, as well as the leadership of these conferences understanding a little more about the television business and how they can also go out there and ask for uh, a larger piece of the pie from a television broadcasting standpoint. You know, you, you, you said a mouthful and, and you talked about the expansion and, and how um, this will impact even, like you said, these uh, white schools and, you know, in particular, look at where A&T is now. Um, and, and the fact that some of these HBCUs are, um, that are, let's say, an AT&T, uh, an A&T that is sort of, well-established, if you will, in terms of how they do things, how they operate, that it will help them. What about those who struggle? What about those who are have been in transition that have been struggling um, HBCU-wise in terms of keeping the doors open and in, in terms of getting back on track because of COVID? Uh, how will or will not this affect them at all in terms of the economics? Well, most of the programs that you're speaking of that are having um, some issues, um, and they're, they're smaller ones because we've actually seen an increase in enrollment for HBCUs due to the environment, not just COVID-19, but the racial um, pandemic, as I like to talk about it and how it's played. It seems like, at least by the data that we're seeing, that there's actually an increase in the number of students that are wanting to go to HBCUs, mainly African-Americans and Blacks. So the enrollment increase is actually helping these uh, HBCUs in terms of them being able to survive and move and, and thrive in some cases moving forward. But to frame your question in terms of those that are having trouble, what you find out, those tend to be the private institutions. And most of your private institutions at HBCUs and really across the board, even historically white colleges, they tend to operate at the Division II level of the NCAA. And as you know, that's uh, a different framework of how they manage the resources and even what they budget the resources for versus the Division I either at the FCS level or the Division I at the FBS level. So let's look at some numbers to try to give you some indication. We talked about Texas earlier. Texas in the SEC, like many of the SEC, whether it's Alabama, uh, Georgia, when you talk about their um, revenue piece of pie, their operational budget, you're talking about $100 million plus. Uh, 
if you're really getting conservative, you might say $90 million. But just for the sake of conversation, let's talk about $100 million. Well, you start to go to these group of fives, the U of H that we're talking about, now you're talking about 50 maybe $70 million, you know, if you talk about that. You talk about even the FBS programs when you go a little further down and you talk about the Sun Conference. Now you're talking about $20, $25, $30 million, right? Uh, so you can start to see how it shrinks. We haven't even got to the FCS level. So at the FCS level, you're talking about budgets of um, really at the high end, maybe $13, $14, $15 million. But usually you're talking about from the range of about uh, 7 8 to maybe $9 million. Well, when you get to the Division II level, you're talking about budgets anywhere from about 3 to $5 million. So you can see the difference in terms of operational costs um, when you look at the various dynamics of what operational level a program, HBC or Historic White College, operates within the NCA. And we haven't even talked about the NCA where you're talking about private institutions mostly, and they start to see um, revenue operational budgets anywhere from a million to $3 million. So it, it's quite expansive when you really look at the diversity of what um, athletic programs and institutions will operate their athletic programs, I should say, uh, of what that looks like. So to really answer your question there, um, there may be some trickle-down effect terms of finances, but I don't see it as a major indicator of what's going to take place as long as you see the enrollment of HBCUs hold steady or increase. If you start to see a dip in the enrollment, that's when you really need to have more concern for your HBCUs, whether that's operating in terms of the athletic programs or even more importantly, the academic programs. If if you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Kenyatta Cavill on the Bastard News Radio Show, Bastard News Radio Network, IBM TV, WCOM, and Big Mind Entertainment. Uh, Doc, final question on that. Um, With the so-called alliance, like you said, the Pac-12 is like, well, maybe not. But even with, you know, Texas and Oklahoma going to the SEC and all of these different things, do you think in terms of the economics as, as it relates to you know, the HBCUs keeping their, um, being on the schedule of these big, big schools in terms of playing, will that change things? Because now, you, like you said, you can see, you know, a USC and, you know, some other Penn State playing, you know, based on if they all emerge and, and they have this gentleman's agreement, like you said, no contractual agreement, but general's agreement. But does it affect the A&Ts and the Texas Southerns and, and, and those, those not just in football, but also the other sports in terms of getting these big teams on their schedule so they can have, you know, that um, the economics that go in and, and playing in these games? Great question. Um, I would say, yeah, not so much in the other sports, particularly basketball and even baseball. I don't think going to change much uh, of those schools playing at the Division One level particularly if they stay in the NCAA. If there's some radical change, and I really don't see them in the NCAA because all they want is more power and control. And they have, like, by the data, about 90 95% of the control. So, yeah, they're talking about percentage. Who cares? They get two more percent. 
when you have 95% of the control, you're doing what you want to do anyway. So I don't see the, this all this nation out there that's suggesting that they're going to lead the NCA. It just doesn't make sense, in my opinion, particularly when you have basketball and the fact that the NCA doesn't control any of the playoff money for football anyway. So what's the need to leave when you have the power to control the NCA in terms of policies? Um, also have the benefit of the basketball money, and you keep it all the football money anyway. That's the reason to leave. But to get back to your scheduling point, yes, in football, I can see the lines uh, between these three conferences. They're more likely, obviously, the only reason is to play each other. Well, if you're filling out a schedule uh, where you play, which obviously could be beneficial to television contractual agreements, even though they said that wasn't part of the reason they did it, uh, whatever, tell me uh, anything. You know, I was born at night, but not last night, as they said. I understand the contract. It may not have been the main reason, but it certainly was an important reason and one that any from a business perspective is going to look at. So we know they looked at that. So that means you add those type of games to your schedule, that means you're going to take off some games. So games that may be taken off, obviously that could be FCS programs, including PCUs that operate at the FCS level. The other issue you see interesting where we need to look at this a little more is the Pac-12 in uh, 10 play a non-football conference schedule, which means as many rules for non-conference games. So one thing that we want to keep our eyes on is are they going to stay at the nine-game conference schedule or will to what we've seen for a while, the more traditional eight-game schedule? If they move more beneficial to the FCS, HBCU programs, because that means they're still game. If they stay at the nine, it becomes even more uh, tough. There's questions about the SEC with 16. You would think rotational schedule, it would be more logical that they're going to move probably to even 10-game schedule. If they do that, then again, that means less likely for the HBCUs, which happen to be in those regions, uh, that uh, would less have a less likely opportunity to play those teams. One of the things that come into play, uh, to point out your question, which is consider about the scheduling arrangement of what will take place in the as well as this expansion of SEC. How will they decide to operate the football schedule? Will they stay packed in terms of the Pac-12, uh, no pun intended, or the Big Ten with the nine game, or will they move to eight, or will you see the SEC, will it move up in terms of having a nine, ten game conference schedule? Yeah, that, that's that's going to be interesting, and, and it may, like you said, it may not, um, affect some of the other uh, program. I mean, some of the other sports, but certainly um, it it's going to be an adjustment uh, slightly, I think, in terms of what um, our HBCUs are doing. Uh, before you go, I wanted to look at the um, the ranking, the preseason major and and minor uh, or mid major uh, rankings in terms of uh, football uh, put together. Of course, um, an organi- organization where uh, a part of the HBCU uh, Pro Sports Media Association. I wanted to look at that poll. I know you do a poll too, and we're going to make sure we get yours on it, and, and of course um, let people know how no people Thank you. can listen. You you have in, in the major division. You have in our preseason poll the A and T at number one. Certainly Alabama A and M uh, received a lot of votes, and but when you go down the the, the list and you look at some of the the, the the teams that are up here, um, there are a lot of uh, 
uh, SWAC teams in there. Um, I guess in particular because of, you know, the, the MEAC obviously not having any. Um, but, you know, is A&T clearly, even though they're um, not in the uh, traditional HBCU uh, conference, are they clearly the best team uh, as we look at this preseason? I don't think they're clearly the best team. I think they certainly are expected to be one of the toughest teams. It'll be fascinating. You just brought to, uh, uh, to a point of mine that I really didn't catch. You're absolutely right that there's not a lot of MEAC teams in there. In fact, I mean, I, I know you said none, but there's one in there. I think South Carolina your point, State. It, it's South Carolina State, but to your right. greater point, it's just one. It's almost close to none. That's why you think about it. It's not in there. And as they go to 16, that's fascinating of what a two-team turnaround, three teams exiting to MEAC can really do for a conference. The other teams have a chance to make some statements, and I think this will change uh, by the end of the season. I think Norfolk State is going to be in the hunt, and some, and the SWAC is going to end up beating each other up, so some of those teams will fall out. So it'll be fascinating. But to your point, uh, it's fascinating to see uh, that only one MEAC team is in there. They have to be in the top five, which I, I like that framework, that the South Carolina State Bulldogs sit in the conference lead at uh, – uh, Number five, North Carolina A&T, uh, as you talked about my pro ranking uh, earlier, it was a little different. I had Alabama A&M number one. I had North Carolina a little further down. Uh, that gives you some indication. But I wouldn't argue. I think it's it's pretty clear that the top three teams at this point coming in the season essentially between North Carolina A&T, Alabama A&M, and FAMU, two of them out of the SWAC. Uh, fascinating that of those two teams in the sweat, they're both in the Eastern Division. Right. So it'll be fascinating to see what takes place. Um, there's an argument that I put out there that's entertaining that some people have. What is the tougher 16 uh, conference slash division? Is it the SWAC East, SWAC West, or the MEAC, the new uh, big six in the MEAC? Um, and most people are looking now at the top of the SWAC is extremely deep. Yeah, and you, I mean, you mentioned Norfolk State. I think Prairie View, uh, A&M, you know. Um, Good one, yeah. Right, so it, it, it'll be interesting. And, and quickly, with the mid-major, when you look at, I, I, look, I, I, I always thought Bowie State is the standard at that level right now. I mean, you can make a case for yeah. Albany State. Uh, Miles, I think, will have another good year. Um but Bowie's not only ranked in yours, ranked in the HBCU Pro Sports Media one, but they're ranked in a lot of other, you know, non-HBCU rankings in terms of the NCAA. So uh, what about the, the mid-majors? Uh, what do you see in terms of the, the top teams and maybe some surprises? Yes, I like what came out of the mid-major division poll and uh, clear transparency. You know, I vote in the poll, you vote in the poll, but we're just one vote. So. Right. It's interesting to see what the other members uh, voted like. And, and this first entry is 13, but you'll see more people voting in the poll over the season of all of us that cover HBCU Pro Sports Media. Fascinating, the collective group when we come together, what this will look at. I think this is going to be a great poll, and I'm glad that you are providing a framework for all of us to discuss. It's going to be one for the fans to really engage because this poll, unlike any other other one, which are ranking or, or done by the SIDs, done by the coaches, or done by, quote, unquote, this national media, 
This one is done by a media that specifically covers HBCUs. Right. So it's going to be fascinating to see what that looks like all season. But to get back to your question, I agree with what, in general, the media said with the top five programs. I would say keep your eye on Savannah State because Savannah State two years ago, because most of the mid-major Division II NIA programs uh, did not play, obviously, this past fall, unlike what you saw a couple of teams out of the MEAC and pretty much the, the entire SWAC, obviously, other than Alcorn State that opted out, they played in the spring. Um, these teams ain't played in a while, and people forget that Savannah State had an excellent season in 2019. Right. They were just not eligible for the SIC championship title, even though they ultimately, off paper, won that division because, remember, they were transitioning down from the FCS level. Well, all systems go now, so keep your eyes on the prize for Savannah State. They would be interesting to follow. But I like what you said about Bowie State. I think they are the standard. People recognize what they've been able to do, playing some really good football. They have really been able to cover the talent in the area, keep them home, and then cherry pick with a player here and there that out, outside of the general area that wants to come and play. Um, you talked about Miles College, uh, Albany State. I really like Miles College as well. A uh, very strong program. Ruffin, uh, as the coach down there, really has that program in a solid direction. They've done a lot in terms of the plans to continue to build on uh, the program there. One that I'm fascinating that is not in the top ten that is moving up is Edward Waters, now University, as they changed the name for Edward Waters College, right. about what they're doing in the state of Florida, the only Division II HBCU program there. They're marketing themselves correctly in that way. And they've done a great job of facility upgrades. So it's going to be fascinating to see how fast they can get up that trajectory and get into uh, the national conversation as we talk about mid-major programs. They are transitioning from the NIA to the NCAA Division II as they were granted that status to do the transition and now are a full member of the SIC, uh, but just will have to wait till they become eligible uh, to participate in terms of the conference championship. But I'm fascinated to see what that looks like. The last team that I want to speak of is one team uh, that the poll members actually see a little lower than I did. I had links in the top five program. They mm -hmm. have them at number nine. And a lot of that is because they're one of the furthest teams out, I mean, going towards the West. They're in Oklahoma. They are at the NIA level, and they're not in the SIAC or the CIAA, so they don't have the benefit of the cultural alliance of that conference setting. So they are what we refer to as the independent playing in the uh, Sooner Athletic Conference. That's another program uh, that is well coached, has uh, had many years of success, and I believe it will continue that one. That's one to also keep your eyes on this year. It's uh, interesting with uh, Edwards, uh, you mentioned, they used to be sort of the, you know, put them on the schedule so we can get good. And it's good right. that you mentioned that now. You know, let's see what, um, you know, the direction they're going. And I think it's all upside. Uh, Tuskegee always um, there. And the Virginia schools, uh, uh, Doc, you know, I know it's Bowie's to lose and, and all of that. But, you know, Virginia Union and State are in there. Fayetteville State, nobody's really talking about winston sale State. But Fayetteville State has been kind of winning that side of the world. And they're in there. So uh, it's going to be interesting. And, and you know, I don't know a lot about West Virginia State, but I've been hearing a lot of good things about them as well. 
Yeah, they're very strong. I'm glad that you brought up the Virginia schools because I would say to give people some indication that may not follow this as deep as we do, uh, the toughest, arguably the toughest Division II division, and some people say maybe division regardless of classification, is the CIAA North. North yeah. That's the division that includes Bowie State, Virginia State, Virginia Union, uh, in terms of what that, and as well as a non-HBC program, Shawan. That right. is extremely tough division, and so you're right. Keep your eyes on Virginia State, Virginia Union. Virginia Union has shown that they're moving in the right direction. Virginia State does not want to get too far behind. That classic matchup between Bowie State and Virginia State over the last couple of years, who, was able, who has been able to win that game, has ultimately come with the conference championship. The last couple of years, it's been Bowie State, and I believe they will find a way to continue to get it done. But you're right. Watch out for the Virginia schools out there. They will be in the mix. Yeah, and that what makes Bowie's uh, run the last couple of years so impressive because that is, I, I agree with you, one of the, one of the <laughs> if not the toughest parts of any um, HBCU uh, conference and division that, that CIAA North is going to be interesting. Doc, before you go, uh, next week, I do want to do your poll, but before you go, let people know how they can follow you and about your show, sir. No problem. I appreciate it. You can follow me on the social media platforms of Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. That's Dr. Kenyatta Cavill, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L, D-R-K-E-N-Y-A-T-T-A-C-A-V-I-L. My friends call me the Dean of HBCU Sports, and hopefully you can see by some indication when we break down HBCU Sports why. They do that. So I ask you to consider following me if you love and want to get more information on HBCUs and continue to listen right here to L.A. Bachelor. Every so often he gives me a chance to jump on the mic with him, and we really have a blast doing that. So I appreciate the time. You can catch me every Tuesday, Thursday, uh, and during the season on Sunday. So Tuesday and Thursday at 6 o'clock Central Standard Time, uh, we give you an inside, as we like to call it, inside the HBCU Sports Lab a framework of what's going on in sports. Uh, you can catch it also on Sunday where we do a wrap-up, and that's at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time. And, and, and Doctor, don't sell yourself so, um, short. I mean, the economics, the understanding of the economics of HBCU, please, please people, he, it, <laughs> he might be the <laughs> dean of HBCUs and talk about the on the field, but trust and believe you heard he understands what's going on off the field as well. And Doc, as always, I appreciate you, sir. And we'll get Thanks. you on next week. Thank you, man. All right. Take care. Look forward to it. Thanks, Doc. To promote my new flower shop, I had one place print my business cards, another print my brochures, and a third, my signs. Now my roses aren't red, my violets aren't blue, my geraniums look dead, and I don't know what to do. Staples can help your business stand out with signs, banners, and brochures that are a true reflection of your company. And now with Staples, spend $50 or more on print and marketing services and get $5 off your next in-store purchase. Now my business is blossoming and I'm spending less green. Exclusions apply. In-store only. And 62318. May I help you? Yeah, it's just cold. My sinuses feel like they're going to explode. Sudafed, aisle 5. My allergies have my sinuses all stuffed up. Sudafed, aisle 5. Tell the man what's wrong. My sinuses. Sudafed, aisle 5. Sinus misery? Get Sudafed. Nothing stronger at relieving even your worst sinus symptoms. Not even a prescription. This could just... Sudafed, aisle 5. Sudafed, prescription strength sinus relief. Based on 24-hour dose of pseudoephedrine.
Back to the show. We thank you for joining us here on the Bachelor News Radio Show, Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, IBM TV, and Big Mind Entertainment. I want to go to my guest. Uh, he is, of course, of Anastas Media, play by play voice with uh, uh, UMass Lowell. He is Nick Anastas. Nick, always good to have you on, my friend. Always good to be on. You spoil me with the introduction music. I love it. No, <laughs> you know, like that biggie. It's always good to have some biggie in there in your life. Um, want to get to the Patriots because, um, you know, say what you want about people, if they want to get vaccinated or not. I mean, we've had that debate on the air um, before. Um, but you look at a guy like Cam who's trying to, you know, pretty much resurrect his career He's looked good in some preseason games. He's in a tight battle with Mac Jones. Mac Jones, by all accounts, you could uh, correct me if I'm wrong, looks good in preseason. He's looked good in the practice games uh, with with the Giants and others, and, and practice completely. Now with with um, Cam, um, you know, violating the protocol of the NFL, uh, can't practice with the team, uh, so he doesn't get the reps, which means Mac Jones gets the reps. Uh, I haven't heard anything from uh, Coach Belichick and the organization about a decision on quarterback. You can correct me and update me if I'm I'm wrong. But if not, uh, what are you hearing out of Cam? What do you think is going to happen with Cam essentially blowing his opportunity if that's the case based on the fact that this guy either either won't get tested or vaccinated, I should say, uh, or follow the protocol. I, I just don't understand when your your career is on the line, basically, you don't want to be a backup, um, that you would not follow this. Well, without delving into the uh, the politics too deeply, I will right. say this about Bill Belichick. Belichick's going to go with who he feels is ready to go the most. It's that simple. Who's going to give the Patriots the best chance to win? Uh, and that'll be the case week by week, you know, as we move forward throughout the season. All those things you mentioned uh, are factors, I think, to a degree. But at the end of the day, it's it's very simple, I believe, in the mind of Belichick. If, if Cam Newton gives them the best chance to win, he's eligible to play, uh, then I can see Belichick naming him as the starter. On the other hand, again, regardless of the COVID situation, if Mac Jones 
who has looked pretty good in this preseason uh, and has looked good in camp from all, all reports, um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, as I said last week, it wouldn't shock me if, um, if he's the week one starter based on merit alone, based on the fact that he is, has been deemed ready to go, has won the competition, et cetera. So in the end, Belichick, as we know, values victory over everything else. And he's going to make the uh, decision at quarterback at any other position, uh, frankly, you know, who's going to give them the best chance to win on that any given Sunday. So you don't think that if it's in a tight situation that, you know, the Patriots are like, okay, let's just keep it moving. Um, COVID, uh, injury, uh, off the field, we we have to keep moving. We're going to do it the Patriot way. So, uh, if, but if it's a tight situation, not just quarterbacks, but uh, positions of players um, that he's looking at some other factors if he wants to – If I just don't believe that Cam or any player should make the decision easier for him if you're fighting for a position. And I think that if Cam um, is not going to, at the very least, be mindful um, – of the NFL pro- protocol, not like not again, not the vaccination, but just following the guidelines. If you're traveling, all of those type of things away from the team. If you're fighting for your position, you know it, it's not Lamar Jackson in Baltimore or you know Tom Brady in Tampa. This is the the Patriots situation with these two quarterbacks have been playing pretty well. That you would you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't give the coaching staff an opportunity to look for some other extra factor, you know, um, to put you on a bench and put the, the rookie in the starting position. Yeah, you can, you can look at it that way. Um, you know, you can, you can look at it that way. I'm not going to fight you on that uh, from that viewpoint. Uh, I will say that the NFL, when they went to – you know, the negotiating table with the NFLPA, the Players Association. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like the so-called anti-vaxxers got much of a voice during those negotiations. Now, whether that, whether or not that's the players' leadership uh, kind of blacklisting them or not listening to them or not taking uh, the situation as serious, you know, in terms of how, how the actual players, a good percentage of the players actually feel about it, how uh, passionate they are. I think all those things were kind of overlooked, um, you know, earlier this year when, when the league met with the Players Association. Uh, mm. It was a bigger issue, but it turned out to be a bigger issue than I think they thought initially. So, and, and frankly, a lot of this stuff is pretty draconian. I mean, Isaiah McKenzie of the Bills got hit with a $14,000 fine because some spy saw him outside without a mask on. I mean, common sense has to apply at some point. So right. am I going to sit here and blame Cam, you know, for, you know, walking around without an ankle bracelet on, which is essentially what this has become for the unvaccinated? I mean, daily testing, you know, their privacy is compromised. The NFL has admitted to putting agents out in the field specifically to monitor these guys in their in their own time. Uh, I, I just think it's gone way, way too far. 
if you want my personal opinion on that front. Um, but again, politics aside, you're right. You know, he is in a competition battle for his job. You've got to be on your P's and Q's. You've got to be on your best behavior, regardless if you believe in the new policies or not. Uh, I, I do agree with you on that. So, uh, you know. And the thing is, you, short, I think you hit it on the, I, I think you hit it on the, on the, the nail, though, uh, Nick, because it could be a players' association thing. If you don't like the rules, then you need to fight against those things. And I, I I'm agreeing with you that, like, uh, if the NFL is saying, if your employer is saying, listen, you better do this or else, then either if you're a union, you fight against it, or you find another job or something. That might not be the fair way of looking at it, but it is what it is. The NFL is still saying this is what it is, and the players right. got to figure out how to do it. You know, whether you agree with it or not, they got you want to. You gonna opt out? I mean, what do you want to do? And I just think that if if you're maybe Tom Brady's a, a, a extreme, but if you're Matthew Stafford and with the Rams and he doesn't really have much competition, then maybe you don't worry about the vaccination. Or I, I think Kirk Cousins is way off base, but but if you're in a position like Lamar Jackson. You know, he's not doing anything and he's following the protocol as much as he can, but he doesn't have any competition. But if you're Cam Newton and you have a rookie quarterback that looks very solid, you know, you don't give your opponent any room to have a, and a coaching staff a reason to, to put you on a bench and start this rookie. That's all I'm really saying. Like you said, politics aside, he can, he don't have a lot of wiggle room at this point in his career. Is my point. Right. Well, again, and, and not, not to delve too deeply into it, but Cole Beasley made a pretty good point, and we know he's been kind of the vocal leader unofficially of the so-called right. anti-vaccine. You know, he made a pretty good point. He said, you know, you can abide by the rules to the T if you're unvaccinated. Succumb to the daily tests. Don't leave the hotel rooms on the road, et cetera. And meanwhile, a vaccinated player, again, a hypothetical situation, could go out on the town and contract, transmit the virus back to Cole Beasley, who's sitting in the hotel room. Cole turns up the positive test, and all of a sudden, he's the villain. So this whole thing, Again, if you break it down, policies are really out of line with the developing science in a lot of ways. And bare minimum, yeah. we're in uncharted water. That's in terms of the behavior. That's in terms of the players trying to you know, figure their, their way in, in this, around these new restrictions, uh, try, to, you know, try to toe the line. But the bottom line is, hypothetically, a best given effort uh, may not be enough in the end anyway. So, again, back to the Players Association, uh, I think Cole Beasley would be an excellent choice right off the bat. Uh, replace the current leadership. Uh, again, you know, it becomes a numbers game. You know, how popular, you know, which side is bigger, et cetera. You know, there'd be some campaigning involved or whatever. But the bottom line is, at, to your point, uh, the first move for a change or the force move to really challenge the league on this stuff would have to be new, new would, would appear to be, at least from my outside perspective, it would appear to be to get some new leadership 
for the players that really addresses all of their concerns and not just half the league. Right. Uh, agree. Uh, you got to, if you have a union, use it. And I think that's what, um, uh, it, 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 if the negotiations wasn't correct, um, then, then they need to fix that moving forward in the next, um, uh, a um, collection bargain agreement. Talking with Nick Anastas here on the the Bachelor News Radio Show. Nick, staying with the Patriots, a lot of moves uh, here uh, recently. Sonny Michelle going to the Rams. Rams having issues, obviously, um, with their running game due to losing their um, second year back that had a lot of promise. He tore his ACL. He's out for the year. So they, they give up, I believe, a uh, a, a fifth and sixth round in the next couple of years. Um, talk about that. I know Sonny had his – I mean, they had high promise. I think he was like a 31st pick in 18. Um, the knee injuries and all of that stuff uh, really uh, made his career suffer in New England, but they make the move. What do you think of the move, and what do you think of what uh, the Patriots got in return? I think it's pretty good. You know, two picks. Uh you know, that's that's two players, you know. So it's a two-for-one deal if you look at it that way. Obviously, the Patriots over the years have valued draft capital. The more picks, the right. better, so to speak. So this certainly fits that trend. Uh, as far as Michelle, to his credit, he has performed pretty well when he's actually been, quote-unquote, healthy. I mean, he really has never been 100% since he got here. Uh, I think it was rookie year in camp he had an issue and, and joined the team late. Uh, and really, again, has been on and off uh, the injury list ever since. But when he's been in there, uh, at times, he's been a different make, difference maker. Now, now, late last season, after the Patriots had been eliminated from the playoff race in you know, the last couple of weeks of the year, he comes back out and, and was one of the more inspiring guys out there. Ran pretty hard. Um, you know, had been having a pretty good productive preseason, had been healthy. So he got, I think, his value back up to the point where the Rams, who were in a tough spot due to the Cam Akers injury, as you said. But, you know, they're looking at 31 other teams as well, you know, for running back help. So they saw something in, in a guy who's still only 25, 26. You know, there's, there's plenty of examples of running backs who were kind of slow out of the gate due to injuries, but but found you know the right team or the right spot, or you know finally got healthy and and finished out with pretty good careers. Uh, that may be the case, but but again, he's got a history of injuries, including on the knees, um, which is always troubling, of course, for running backs. But uh, no question, you know Belichick parlayed the situation, maximized the scenario by getting two picks, two mid-round picks is pretty good. Yeah, and but, you know, it, I was kind of surprised, but not at the same time. Because, you know, with with Belichick, he'll make this move, like you said, he likes multiple picks, especially, you know, later in the draft and that kind of thing. Um, but like you said, Michelle, it, he's, he, he's a hard-running back, and he, he performed when he was in there. Um, but I, I think this, if he can stay healthy, that's the big if. Um, that that can it could be a win win for both teams. I mean the Rams definitely have the defense. I think Stafford can help them a lot, you know, in the right direction. Certainly more than what they had uh, previously. But 
um, you know, when you you look at that that team, anybody's going to have a, a shot uh, of dethroning Brady and the, the Bucks. Um, I would think that they may be the you know the team that have a a, a shot to to do so. Um, staying with uh, the you know Patriots, of course, uh, they make a move and and bring in a corner uh, in a deal from the Ravens. What does that mean for, to me, still a very good, the rumors about Stephen Gilmore being gone, what does that mean for him with this trade with the Ravens? Hmm. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I figured we, if Gilmore was going to go, it, it would have happened by now. Uh, what was my initial thinking? Um, you know, then he, he comes out on the pup list, and you know, it, it's he's still sticking with it. You know, nobody quite knows how healthy he he really is or isn't. Uh, it just seems like a typical cornerback drama situation, right? Mm. And it's not just unique to the Patriots. We've seen this league wide over the course of the years. Uh, you know, the, the old adage is the wide receivers are the prima donnas on the offensive side and the corners are the prima donnas, attention seekers on the defensive side. I, I think there's, there's some truth to that. I, I mean, it's a blanket statement, obviously, and unfair to a lot of, uh, a lot of players, but, but it's also a reputation that's, that's been well-earned over the years by countless So this may be more of a hardball issue where the Patriots are like, okay, you know, we're going to show you that we can play hardball too and that you are replaceable. And they go out and make the deal, add to the depth. Now, again, with or without Gilmore, they still have a rock-solid secondary uh, before the trade. Depth at, you know, on the secondary is probably the strength, not just of the defense, but the deepest position on either side of the ball. So they do have strength. The Patriots, I think, are dealing from strength when it comes to Gilmore. So I, I honestly, LA thought this would be resolved by now one way or the other. Uh, I don't think it's ever a good sign to start the season with, with something lingering like this, um, you know, because the longer it lasts, it, it, it tends to end uglier, you know? So I, I don't know one way or the other. I think um, this thing will be, you know, hopefully for Patriots fans sake, it'll be, it'll be done. Um, you know, one way or the other, some, some resolution will come hopefully by week one so everybody can either move on or move forward on the same page. So you don't, you don't think he'll be traded? I don't. I, I, I think the Patriots would rather keep him in the fold, you know, regardless of the trade or not. Uh, they value- it, the, only, the only reason I ask is that uh, Belichick and the Patriots and the Steelers are – Sort of similar, like um, whether it be injury or uh, the publics or, or, you know, getting rid of them before they get too old. They, they, he has that mentality. I, I do think you're, they're playing right. a little cat and mouse type thing with him. But, you you know, he's still one of the best in the, in the business. The injury is not, in my opinion. So that, that's why I was wondering if, if – you know, get rid of him now. He's got to. We don't know what he's he's going to be when he comes off the list, and and you bring in a guy right. for the Ravens. So that that's why I asked the question in terms of maybe you might see them make a move. 
Yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, I'm honestly wouldn't be surprised either way. I put the odds at 50-50, right down the middle. Everything you just made, uh, every point you just made makes sense on the other side of the argument, uh, especially when you consider the price tag and the age of the, of the player. I mean, you're right. It's, it, rather get rid of him a year too early than a year too late is another motto that the Patriots seem to go by. So this may be, you know, the telltale sign that you know, his days are numbered. I wouldn't argue against that either. I still would maintain that they'd rather have him out there. Um, you know, if he comes back and, and he's, he's a shell of his former self, then, yeah, they roll the dice and they lose because his, his trade value goes down. Um, but if he comes out there, is healthy, and plays well, uh, he can still be a difference maker. You know, do they want to pony up the cash in the end remains to be seen. So I, I really think it could go either way. Yeah, great point. Um, just to look at and assess the AFC East, obviously most people are saying it's Buffalo's to lose. I, I think, again, it really comes down to the quarterback played with New England. They they brought in so many um, free agents uh, on both sides of the ball really effectively to give the quarterback a chance to be successful. Um, and then, you know, you look at what the Dolphins have done and, and, and the talent mm-hmm. they've brought in. Um, right now, based on preseason and what you saw and, and, and going into the season, um, you know, where do you see New England at this point? Who, who wins that division? And how big and how much has the conversation been about week four? And you know what I mean when Tom Terrific comes to town. Well, I I agree with you. I think the Bills are the favorite. Um, that offense was scary last year. It could even be better this year. Uh, Allen still seems like he's, he's potentially just entering his prime. He's still young enough to be learning and improving. Um, that's not the case, obviously, with Cam Newton, you wouldn't think, at age 32. Uh, but with Allen, at 25-26, I still think there's room both as good of a year as I uh, Plus, you throw in the fact that the guys around him are still in their primes. Uh, you know, Stephon Dick, Beasley, as we talked about earlier, was close to 1,000 yards out of the slot last year. Uh, they drafted a third-round rookie last year in Moss, who was in and out of the lineup with injuries, but when he was in, he looked pretty good. I think that there's a compliment to second, you know, Singletary there. If he can stay healthy, he's the third down back. So, you know, the Bills were loaded for bear last year on offense, and nothing much has changed there. So, so I would give the edge if you compare them to New England. I mean, there's probably more unknowns when you talk about the Pats. Uh, and their offensive personnel and what exactly they're going to look like. They're going to try and run. We know that. Um, but but right now you've got to give the edge to Buffalo based on the recent the recent history. And then defensively, the Bills, as we talked about, L.A., uh, started off very slowly last year, had some injuries at linebacker, um, got healthy midseason, and started to play lights out when they started to win seven, eight in a row. Um, that's still a young defense that comes back intact and gets younger on the edge with their first two picks uh, going to defensive ends. So that'll be interesting there. You know, how good and how consistent can that Buffalo defense be? 
because I think New England's defense will be pretty good. Um, you know, there's they've added depth. They they got Hightower back. They brought back Benoit. Um, you know, the D line looks a little deeper, and we talked about that secondary. So uh, overall, again, the, the the Bills are the champs. Um, so so it's, it's tough to to take them out of that top spot. Miami will be interesting at the young offensive line. I think is the key there. Can Tua, you know, take a step forward? You know, probably a slightly above average defense. Although the Dolphins have a deep secondary too. Uh, and, and then the Jets, you know, they'll be happy with five wins, maybe six wins. So, you know, it seems like it's Buffalo's to lose. And as far as Week Four goes, uh, the majority of the fan base up here is pro Tom Brady. Uh, it'll be a love fest. No question about it. There is still a slight percentage, a smaller percentage of the fan base that's still a little upset, you know, feels a little spurned maybe. Um, but but I think even by then they'll, you know, they'll come around. There's, there's going to be somebody booing uh, Tom Brady that I can see. Yeah, I didn't, didn't think so, but it's uh, interesting. Uh, all we hear, uh, Nick, is about how, you know, um, the genius wants to get back at the quarterback, and they want not only to win that game, but they want to have a better season. I think uh, odds of that is, is uh, you know, slim. But that that's really, you know, the they want with the Super Bowl, yeah. right? They the want to win the Super Bowl, right? In order for it to really be even, then Belichick's got to get number seven. That's that's really the end game of course. Yeah. Then he can prove it. And we talked about that when, when Tom decided to go to Tampa. It was like, okay, who's who's uh, uh, the bigger part? Is it Dynasty? Is it one, the other, or both, and that kind of thing? And so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, talk with Nick Anastas here on WCOM uh, in Chapel Hill. Of course, uh, the, the Bastion News Radio Show and the Bastion News Radio Network and a Big Mind Entertainment, IBM TV. Uh, Nick, switching to baseball, Listen, we've talked about the AL East and, you know, Tampa is almost like hockey. I mean, they just, they're the standard now, it seems, the way they've been playing last couple of years. Obviously, uh, Boston's been struggling, uh, although uh, coming back uh, a little bit and, and staying in the wild card, at least right now, the, the, my Yankees have been left out. But everybody's come back down to earth. So what, assess that. Would uh, Toronto, by the way, not too far behind Boston? Look at those four teams. What's been the difference? Uh, for me, it's been the Yankees uh, starting pitching. Um, on the positive, on the negative, I think Boston, sort of like with with the Yankees um, closing. It's been their closing and. And and really struggling in that bullpen and, and that closing uh, staff. Really, been the the story since uh, Craig Kimbrell left. If you think about it, I mean it's been kind of patchwork. Uh, Matt Barnes better suited as an eighth inning guy, kind of thrown into the role. Uh, you know, plays very pitches very well, kind of plays above his head. During the first half, but but you said it best that you know the phrase is come back down to earth. I mean, you know they they played very well for two thirds of the season, 
which I think if, if you ask a Red Sox fan and, and they give you an honest answer, it is probably much longer than they thought this team would survive. Uh, can they limp their way to a wild card win? You know, that's definitely possible. Uh, they've steadied the ship before, but, but it seems like it's been a solid month of more or less consistent losing when, when it's the same story every night uh, during these losses. They scored enough runs during the first four months uh, to win games and, and store up victories and, and you know, not only stay in the East, but, but build up a lead in the wild card that, you know, they've had to kind of fall back on over the last few weeks. Um, I, I said it last week. If they don't end up making the playoffs, it'll be disappointing because of the way it ended. But, uh, you know, looking back, I, I still think that they overachieved, uh, even if they lose really from here on out. So, you know, they, they kept it interesting all the way to late August, if, if, that, be, if that ends up being the case. Um, you know, there, there's some, some room for optimism as well. You know, Sale, we've, we've seen a couple of samples. Um, you know, is this kind of his last stand? You know, some of the young kids have pitched well. Uh, but really, back to the original question, the bullpen, particularly the closer's role, has been the Achilles heel for the last couple of seasons now, and, and there's really not an answer uh, in the short term. Yeah, and then, but you know, there's a key uh, game or series, uh, of course, with the Yankees going out to Oakland. I, I'm not. I think, you know, obviously things can change. Certainly, not just in the wild card, but we can see if Tampa goes in slump. Um, that I, I think that you know, if the Yankees, Boston, uh, get in as a wild card, and the Oakland's got their issues as well in terms of scoring runs and. And I think they kind of hit a, a, a wall as well. A final question for you, because uh, I know T-Mac and I, he's on the line. We talked about this before. Now, you look at the, the Giants, and I'm so happy for San Fran and Chicago, the White Sox. You know, uh, you look at Milwaukee, again, quietly being very good. Small markets are really doing well, and I think it's really good for baseball. I think it's underrated in terms of ratings um, uh, and the game itself. Um, with that being said, what do you think about that, that if there's a San Fran, Chicago, White Sox type of World Series, if they can get the numbers, if people will be excited? Because there's storylines in both of those. Um, and the fact that – and I've been saying this for years, Nick, and I don't know if I said it to you, but I've been saying this for years. I'm a Yankee fan. You know, you're up there, Boston, Red Sox and stuff, but I don't need to see Boston, New York all the time. I don't. I don't want to see it. I want to see Yankees, Oakland. I want to see Yankees, whoever. You want to see Boston, right. whoever. It's not just about that. That's an East Coast bias. What about that? Because there's some burnout for Yankees, Red Sox, type stuff. That's like Carolina Duke type stuff. I don't always want to see Carolina Duke. Give me Duke and someone else and Carolina and someone else. So what about the small market and what about this East Coast bias when it comes to Yankees Red Sox? Well, it's it's clearly market driven. Um, You know, it's the same thing the NFL does with the New York Giants. 
right? They, they've had one winning season or one playoff trip the last nine years, and yet they get most of the primetime slots when it comes to the network coverage week in and week out. Right. Um, and I think baseball takes the same approach with their big markets as well. Um, the problem baseball has is bigger than the two teams, you know, who's going to match up in the World Series. The problem they have is that the game has become too slow for the casual viewer. There's too many other entertainment options in 2021. There's too many other gadgets to keep people's attention. And it's a problem in baseball, of course. I think it's a problem uh, in sports as well, period. You know, a trend that's gone on over the course of the last decade or so, slowly but surely. Uh, And baseball in particular, I, I think, has become too slow for the casual fan. Now, now the diehards are always going to be there. Um, you know, the, the fan bases of the teams in the World Series are going to be there. But I'm just not sure if, if there's anyone outside of any market. You know, obviously, the, the, you know, again, the diehards are going to tune in wherever they're from. But it seems like what, there's year in, year, year after year, there seems like there's, there's less and less of an attraction for the casual fan. I don't know what the numbers are off the top of the head, but but they're not where baseball needs them to be. They're not where they were. So I'm not sure if, again, a small market World Series, as intriguing as it may be to the hardcore fan, uh, is the best for baseball. And I think, that, you know, they're, they know they need a big market, the, the, the biggest viewership, the most eyeballs. And if that means New York and L.A., if it's Yankees, Dodgers, you know, then, then then that's what they're going to have to gear it towards. No, the concern is that um, a lot of people, the, the conspiracy theorists, I don't, I don't buy into it, but I've heard this before, um, and it's really all sports when it comes to market Lakers, Celtics, whatever you know, whatever uh, uh, the big markets that you mentioned, the Giants, that the officiating um, uh, in these specific sports and, and the way. Um, these um, leagues go about their business is skewed to make sure these big market teams are in these finals and championships. I don't necessarily agree to that, but, you know, there are some people out there that do believe, oh, you know, and and then you look at the the money involved with the Yankees who who can print money and the the Mets and the Red Sox and the Dodgers, all the big, you know, they print money, you know, and they can buy talent and things like that, but um, you know, that, that's a, a theory out there. Well, it, you know, it's not a theory in, in the terms that the fact that there's not a salary cap helps the bigger market. Mm-hmm. It just does. There's more revenue streams available. We've covered this over the years. Um, is that by design? You know, is that to punish and skew the game? You know, load the dice, so to speak, for the bigger market? As you would say, a conspiracy theory, I don't know. But what I do know is that no salary cap helps the bigger team. We've seen it year in and year out. As far as, you know, what happens between the lines, uh, there's not much rigging that the officials do. Not in baseball. I mean, what are we going to talk about, balls and strikes? You know, more often than not, you don't see a, a, a real blown, pivotal balls and strikes, you know, blow. 
not like basketball where they're calling, you know, 30, 40 fouls a game. They may load up on a player, as we saw with the, uh, with the scandal 15, 20 years ago in the NBA. Right. Uh, but, but with ball, there, there's never really been a history of crooked umpires because, again, I think it's tougher to pull it off. If you want to talk about conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, you can, st- you can look no further than the current Red Sox manager, uh, Jose Lugo. <laughs> with the recent Astros scan. I mean, that yeah. is, is as big of a tie on baseball as anything else. Yeah. So, you know, again, it, it's back to my main point, though. Baseball was at its height, you know, what, 50, 70 years ago, where along with horse racing, you know, along with boxing, were really the big three in this country. And slowly but surely, since then, there's been more entertainment, uh, the NBA has gotten bigger. The NFL has gotten bigger. Uh, you know, you got golf. You got lacrosse at the youth level is a problem for baseball, at least up here in the Northeast. Um, you know, it, 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 it's a slow game. It's three and a half hours. You know, back in the day, that may have been, you know, you can plan your day around that. In, in this world where attention spans last 30 seconds, you know, baseball has struggled at least in the United States and at least amongst the, the tangible viewership numbers. Yeah. So I tell you, I think, go, go ahead, it, I'm, I'm just saying, I think they, they need to concentrate on speeding up the game. And I know they've looked into the thing, you know, the clock and all that. You know, how much of the, of the rules do you really want to tamper with when you're talking about a game that's, that's 150 or whatever years old? Um, you know, and how, how the stats are you know, considered the holy grail. You can't alter the game too much or you'll start to alter the stat is the thinking there. But again, I I still think something's got to give because it's too slow and they're bleeding viewers year in and year out. Well, and just to to wrap up, um, you know, it's a lot of things, especially um, when when the game is played. And I love the game. I grew up playing that first. But, you know, it doesn't help that you you have a Miami Marlins is bad all the time it seems until they win um and other other areas where you know they're 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 just not really good baseball being played i mean as good as tampa is i mean they're a small market team so uh, those are the things that baseball has to consider nick as always my friend i appreciate you we'll get you on next week talk some more man thank you so much thank you you too, man. Nick and is on the Bassett News Radio Show. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us. If you missed any part of the broadcast, go to our website where you're listening live right now at thebachelornews.airtime.pro. B-T-H-E, Bachelor, B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R, news.airtime.pro. We're going to bring in Tony T. Mac McClain from Black Police Sports Network here, a little echo in the background, um, just so you know, uh, T. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, T, um, you heard what Nick and that, we've got a lot of noise in the background. Um, you heard what Nick had to say in terms of the game being speed, speed up in, in terms of baseball and small markets and big markets. Um, but I, I don't think it has anything to do with the East Coast bias. Uh, Yankees, Red Sox, you know, Duke, Carolina, you know, I, I just, it, some people just, you're kind of tired of seeing that same thing on the mouse or wherever, even if it's regional. Um, we've seen in Fox Sports South, um, Yankees, Red Sox. I mean, it, you get tired of seeing those type of things. You know, there's a big audience out there, even if you're um, people, whether you're a fair weather, uh, a casual fan, or you're a fan of the game, whatever game it is, now people get tired of that. They want to see other things. If you're going to show them baseball, you're going to show them college basketball, you're going to show them whatever, you need to give them a variety. And I think the East Coast bias is something that gets really suppressed in today's conversation when it comes to these rival sports. Well, um, the uh, Field of Dreams game, couple of weeks ago, actually two weeks ago tonight, I believe it was. Right. Uh, highest rated regular season game since 2005. Wow. Now, arguably, you could say those are two big markets now. You know, White Sox probably are not on the same, you know, popular. I mean, White Sox have their fan base. And, of course, you know, you know the Yankees have their fan base as well. But um, I think, see, here's the, here's the thing. Every sport wants to get the quote unquote uh, 25 to 35 year old demographic. The only sport that really gets it without even trying is the NFL. Um, baseball, it's not close. Basketball, probably a little bit more. As a matter of fact, the gap between the NBA and the NFL gets a little smaller, gets a little smaller every year. Maybe you probably took a step back this year because you didn't have a quote-unquote glamour final, but still, that being said. See, baseball's in a, in a quandary because if you speed the game up too much, you lose the older fan base. And when they try and, and to... Tony, and, and Tony, I got a text that someone said that, you know, that's true, baseball is too slow, but it's it's nothing that they really could do it's about it. See, that's been baseball, see, in, in many ways, that's been baseball's biggest sell. You know, they always try to play, you know, that baseball's a quote-unquote thinking man's game and all this other stuff. But that's been, you know, that's been baseball's history. Baseball is a slow, you know, that's why it thrives during the summer because it's very laid back and what have you. So. If they, and see, again, it's a precarious thing because, again, if you try to speed it up too much, you're going to you, – you lose – let's put this way. 
baseball's biggest fan base is their older fans. On top and of the fact, you, Tony, on top of the fact that we always been talking, how long have we been talking about, you know, our play, our people, black people watching and playing the game? So if we, that, does that play in it that we don't have our fa- enough of our faces um, up there and it's slow? Well, well, um, the sport has a lot to do with that, but this also is just that, you know, our kids aren't playing the game. Now, that, and again, we've gone back and forth uh, with that. You know, it, it, it becomes monotonous after a while. No, the sport doesn't do a good job of selling itself in certain instances. I think they, they're, they're very, you know, compared to some of the other sports, they're very lazy in, in pushing the game, especially in, um, in, in the black community. But um, but again, I just think it's an over. You know, Nick hit on the hit on it in a sense because you know the sports styles have changed over the years. You know, back in the day, like you said, baseball, boxing, horse racing was was the big three at 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 one point in this country. Um, all three of them, all three of those sports now. Um, their numbers aren't half as what they were even 15, 20, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Um, and, I, and, I, and I bring this up a lot as well, and I think it's something that needs to be said still because, you know, we're still, you know, COVID proves one thing is that people can get along without sports. You know, yeah. people, you know, people, you know, and when you realize that, the marginal sports fan now has other, there's just other things that that they're willing to do. And, you know, again, it wasn't like there was this grounds when, when, when sports started to come back last year, there wasn't this groundswell of, you know, whatever, even the NFL's numbers were down uh, to the yeah. point where now they've, now they've, now they've overblown it in a sense. Now, I mean, it was already overblown, but now we're basically getting uh, an 18-week schedule now, be, be, you know, because of it. You see, college football has uh, expanded the; uh, they're in the process of expanding the playoff as well. So, but see, with those sports, they're able to sort of do that because of the nature of the game. If again, if baseball tries to speed the game up too much, it's going to alienate the little fan base that they still do have. Because see, I don't, you know, I don't know if there's, I don't, I don't know if they're ever going to get that, you know, that 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 demographic ever again. I, I don't, I don't like to, I don't want to like cast doom, doom and gloom, but I think because of, you know, let's put it this way, that demographic, uh, forty, fifty years ago, is completely different to that demographic now. There are, there are other there are other there are other entertainment um, um, options. There's just other things, and not all of them are sports related. Now some of them but, they're going to be. Go ahead. I I, did, I got a, a text from somebody in Virginia, but that is also someone that said that you know, and, and this is I, I'm only bringing this up because I want you to explain it better than than I. That the the person said if we're not represented. We we not watching, and and T you know I told you that I hold on let me just say I grew yeah so I grew up playing the game loving the game obviously coming from 
inner city. I played in Dal Metro League over in Fairfield, over uh, um, um, Fearful side of New Haven. You know what I'm talking about. So I played a lot of Hispanics and stuff, but I played the game. Um, so just kind of explain where we, how we got from me and 51. And remember, we coached together in Little League and stuff. That where we are now, because again, it's the point. We're not, I've been trying to get my kids, hey, it's a ball, it's a glove, let's just go shoot it out. No, that I want to shoot a three-pointer or I want to throw a touchdown pass, like to your point. So where do we lose our way in terms of, you know, people wanting to play and then, hey, like she said, if we're not playing a the game, then we don't want to watch the game. I, it's it's not just the one. It, it's been a gradual thing. I um, I've always said that when when they shut it down uh, in '94 for the strike, to me they lost a generation of kids. Now 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 that's been a few years now, and so so maybe that's maybe that's where the maybe that's where it began because I know there were a lot of people older than me that when they uh, when they shut it down in '94, they basically said, "I'm I'm done with baseball. I, I'm, right. I don't want to deal with it." And as much as they tried to make it out that Cal Ripken saved the game, and that uh, the summer of '98 saved the game, no, it didn't. It's they've had their ups and downs, but for the most part, it's been stops and starts and stops and starts. Uh, I also personally. I think the treatment of, of of Barry Bonds has a lot to do with it as well. I think the kids saw the, the, the kids of that era saw how Bonds was treated, and they said, "You know what? If that's how they're going to do their quote unquote best black star, the hell with the kid." Now, now, granted, you see the kind of vitriol that they give um, LeBron, but it's 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 different. It's, it's it seems to be different because you literally and figuratively had a um, entire sport sort of just basically, you know, go after him in a sense, all because he wouldn't comply. And I I think that I I think between those two events and the fact that the, that the sport in and of itself has been very lazy in regards to pushing the game. I think that's, I, I think it's, again, it's not, it's, it's never a one-factor thing. It's always going to be a series of things. And I, but, I, but I do think the one common thread is that the sport has never, to me, has never really embraced trying. They only do, they only do it for, for particular reasons. And, and, and you know, um, and, and, and I, think that's, I think that's one of the reasons why it's still – not very popular in in the black community, and because because the other sports, good, bad, or indifferent, they sold the game to the community, or or or, um, you know, the you know the game. Maybe I mean it wasn't it wasn't like they were doing anything to it. It's just that they did they they it appealed that the sport appealed to them more than baseball did. Now there are hey, now. No, not, 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 there are there are great players that have come. You know the the the, the kid from Vanderbilt uh, um, that was picked by the Mets. I was excited about getting him because I knew that you know, hey, he wound up being a star. Now now they dropped the ball, of course, by not signing him. But would they have done that if that was a white player? Right. 
And you, you know what, it, it, a lot of what I'm getting in the chat and on 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 email text is that uh, one thing. And, and by the way, uh, to your point, uh, Barry Bonds, a black ball player who you know holds the home run record that uh, people want to put an asterisk by, saw his father Bobby Bonds go through media coverage that really ripped Bobby. And that's where all that started. That's where all and right. see, that's where all that started. That's where all of that started. But see, in you know, but see, it doesn't you know, it's easier to just paint him out to be a, a, a butthole as opposed to looking at the whole story. Now, see, Ken right. Griffey was ambivalent about the Yankees because of the treatment that he got and his father got when he was there. But no one had, now, now people will focus on that, but they won't focus on Bonds. Now, and, now, now, and, 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 and Bonds too, T, T, as you know, his godfather was one of the greatest ball players of all time. So he saw so, sort of all that media darling and then the, you know, the black sheep family type stuff at the same time. So why wouldn't that, why wouldn't that that Bonds looks at uh, Bonds looks at the media and how they treat the black ball players. I mean, I would. If- sure. So it's 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 a if if you don't think it's a factor, then you just haven't been paying attention. That's that's the only thing I can really say. If you if you because it's 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 definitely been there. And if and, and again, I just I just you know I have a you know. I have no problem saying baseball is my favorite sport, but it's a but it's been a it's been a love hate relationship for years because of the all the all, all of the perfunctory things that happen and 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 go on. I I, I give you an example. Uh, you know, when uh when the Mets got the Baez from the Cubs, I'm I'm you know I'm I'm online with somebody and says, um uh, you know hey good luck with him. He's not going to do anything for you. He's a he's a he's a he's a butthole and all this other stuff. And I'm saying, I basically said, look, tell me you don't like him. Please don't try to tell me he's not a good ball player. The guy almost went in. You know, guy helped your team. He's a Cup fan, by the way. He said, right. look, guy helped you break the guy helped you break the curse. Damn, he was you know he's put good years together. Just say you don't like him. Please don't try to tell me he can't play. And see, unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of times in the in the scrutiny or over scrutiny of non-white ball players. They 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 make it personal and insist you just just say you don't like him, and then we can move on from that. But don't try to tell me he can't play. And therein no, lies but... a lot of the problems. But therein lies the problems because they will try to tell you that well he's not all that good. Well, the numbers say otherwise. But see, they won't tell you why he won't good, other than they really believe well, they sort of the color the skin. That's my point. They get all excited yeah. about, you know, these Rizzos and guys like that that don't look like us, right? Even though they can hit 230 mm-hmm. or whatever. And I'm not saying about Rizzo, I'm just bringing a Rizzo, but I'm just saying they'll get excited about them. But Baez is one of the best players that position, if not uh, help, like you said, bring a title to the Cubs breaking the curse, but they'll say, oh, this, that, and the other, but they won't tell you because his last name is Baez that they don't like him because his last name is Baez. He's a great player. And, 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 see, and, see, and see, you know, 
I don't have the, you know, when they're over hyping the white players, I take it in stride to a certain extent. I mean, look, if the guy can play, the guy can play. I don't, you know, it's 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 different when you're hyping somebody that's that's not worthy of the hype. And and most of the time, it's not the 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 Trouts or the uh, Rizzo's or the Harpers of the world. Those guys can play. They have right. the credentials. It's the hype that you that that bothers you more than anything right. else. Now to see, um, you know, the, the, the MVP voting this past year uh, with uh, the Joker, good ball player. Was he really the MVP of the league this year? Right. You know, you can you can go back and forth. Um, they're pushing, you know, Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic is a great ball player, but there's a there's an ulterior motive for pushing him. Thank and you. That's, and there and see, that's that's there. And see, when we when we dare to bring it up, then people want to say, "Oh, we're playing the race card." The race card's been played long before we were here. And the NBA is is very notorious when they bring a, a Luka Doncic because they want him to be the next Larry Bird. The next Larry Bird's got to be the Magic Johnson and everything and the, those things. Uh, and, and it's just funny. I got two two comments that was made that said, uh, number one, why can't we overhype our players? Is one comment that came in. And number two, what, what, what was that again? What, what did they say again? They said, "Why can't we overhype our our black ball players like they do?" Number one, that was the first uh, question comment, and then number two was the fact that um, if we uh, talk about a uh, race, especially in baseball, where they don't look at this comment, then we're playing the race card. Uh. That doesn't make any sense what he's saying. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not understanding his comment or her comment. No, what I'm saying you know. it was two comments. Two comments. The first no, one the was sec- the second. The second comment. No, the second comment to me made no sense. Okay, they were saying they were saying that when we play the race card, that we're that we're being racist when we talk about the race card. That's that's perfect. That's perfect. White, you know what? That's that that's that's white supremacist speak. That's that's perfect. White supremacist speak. Plain and simple. The, the fact the fact that we the fact that we bring up racism is racist. That's white supremacist speak. Right. Plain and simple. I will I will never waver from that. When we speak of of how things are racist, and then someone says, "Well, it's racist for you to say that." And that's white supremacy speaking. And white, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you have just as many black white supremacists as you have white uh, white supremacists. So that's my answer to that. And that's funny because that was a, a, a uh, I believe the the name. Uh, I'm assuming. Probably black. Unfortunately, unfortunately, white supremacy knows no color. Unfortunately. Because it's an yeah. attitude more than anything, and see, again, a lot of it, you know, it, it goes with the with the, with the self hate and all that other stuff too, as well. But yeah, any, you know, it's always it's always bothered me when people say, "Well, when you bring up racism, you're being racist." That's that's white supremacy talk. That's white supremacy talk, plain and simple. 
Yeah. And what about the first comment in terms of how, you know? Um, I think we do. I, I think, but see, but see, but see, again, in baseball, just not as I mean, let's be let's be honest, just not as many in baseball. But in the other sports, it's definitely the look. What's the you know? For Christ's sake, you know the the biggest argument most of the time in in most basketball is Jordan versus um, um Jordan versus um James. You know, yeah. and, you know, to me, to me, you know, you're you're you're, you're forgetting about Chamberlain, you're forgetting about um, um, Kareem and other and other folks. But no, I think I think I think we definitely have to see. I have always felt that the difference between black sports fans and white sports fans is very simple. We accept the flaws of, of our athletes because they are like us. We don't feel white, white folks tend to want to God like their players. You know, Tom Brady isn't just the greatest uh, football player. He isn't, isn't the best player. He has to be the greatest player of all time. It always has to be, you know, it has to be overly, overly, overly. And see, my thing is, look, I've had one sports idol my entire life, and it had nothing to do with the way he played the game. And that uh, catches Marcellus Clay. Had anything to do with him being a black man. Now, was he, now he, was a great, you know, he was a great boxer, of course. That goes without saying. But there's something where we see, you know, it's always been different for us as black sports fans because we, we, I guess to a certain extent, we may hold them to not so much a higher standard, but it's not going to be the be all to end all, you know? Right. right. And then, and, you know, to your point, uh, and you're talking about uh, Muhammad Ali is a later name um, that we don't lower it up. We ain't going to jump off a bridge. If, if we, uh, our sports, uh, our great, hero or mentor or whatever you want to call in terms of sports uh, doesn't come through. Mine is me, Joe Green, and Dr. J. Those are my two uh, that I love. And, and and you're right to that point. I did get the one that Thomas said that we acquiesce and we allow us to be inferior in baseball when it comes to our talent. Um, we still got the Upton brothers, if I'm not mistaken, and you got some other talent that's out there, obviously. Well, just only, only, only one, only one, only, uh, um, BJ's out of the league now, but uh, Justin is still, Justin still plays with, uh, with uh, the Angels. But, yeah, the Angels, but, but, right, but, right. But, 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 but that means that they're, they're but, saying but, that, you know, we, we, we look at our talent as being inferior in baseball, and I don't know if I I don't get that at all. I would, um, I would, I would suggest that you uh, look up the history of the Negro League and, 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 and come back to come back to me, come, come back to me after that. Because um, the thing is, it's kind of hard for us to look at ourselves inferior when we don't have any GMs we don't have any owners and very, very few, you know, official, you know, so, you know, look at it for the wholeness of the game, not just, um, you know, there, there is no, I don't think that there's a thing where we look at them as self as inferior. It's just that we are not given the same, you know, it, it just looks at, it looks on, on the surface. We don't get the same opportunities. Right. And in, in fairness, too, like you talked to Michael Coker, you 
you know this better than I do, T, that in the minors we have the, the talent there. It's not getting to the majors. Well, it's pretty, you know, but there's just as many white players that I'm getting to, too. It's just, look, um, it's, it's a, you know, Unfortunately, it seems like with baseball, as modern as they try to get sometimes, there's still these old hackneyed attitudes. I mean, even in the NFL, they still they still they, they still look cross-eyed at black quarterbacks. It's still you know it's still you know even for every great success story, there's still other silly, perfunctory things that still go on that makes you know that they still don't, they still sort of look at us in subservient ways. You know, Gary Sheffield said it correctly, I think, a few years back. The reason why they, you know, why, you know, you've seen, you know, more Hispanics, you know, be given opportunities because they feel like, quote, unquote, control them more. Now, there have been great, great Hispanic ballplayers, and there will always still be great Hispanic ballplayers. But, you know, there's always going to be an exploitive thing in regards to that. There's always going to be a double standard. I go back to the Baez thing. You know, if, you know, you know Baez was just as much of a contributor to those great Cubs teams as Rizzo, as Bryant, but you have folks that are like, you know, hey, you can't leave town fast enough. And you know, it's 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 unfortunate. It's very unfortunate that you know we're still that we're still dealing with because I'll 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 I'll, um, I'll you know you look at somebody like uh, uh Fernando Tatis, who some may feel is you know maybe the new face of the game, but again I'm talking to this guy and you know we're talking, it's just it's I don't like Tatis. He comes off as a punk to me. And I'm like, how does he come off as a punk to you? Why? Because you don't and, know his culture, you know. Well, see, it's, now, now see, it's, it's interesting. Now see, he's the son of a former major leaguer. That's right. So, if anything, he's going to know the slings and arrows of trying to get there, and what have you, in regards to that. And does he have a quote unquote a little bit more swag to him? Yeah. And I don't have, you know, it's always funny to me how people can get their panties in a, in a bind about bat flips and, 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 and other little things that literally and figuratively have nothing to do with the game. If you're but more you know, worried about a, about a bat flip or, or, or guys, quote, unquote, celebrating too much after whatever, then, 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 then that's, you know, that's more of a problem that you have than 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 with the game. And the the kids, these kids are different. I mean, people got to understand the eras are different. And and one thing that keeps coming back, just to put a wrap on this, is that oh, I keep hearing people, hey, how about highlighting the great players, the great black ball players we have in the game, just like white folks lord up their players and they some someone brought up Mookie Betts who I told you even with the injuries this year obviously but I mentioned to you you know when he left Boston to go to the Dodgers that I thought arguably was the best player in the game uh as opposed to, to Mike Trout and Mike Trout might be the best player right but he 
why not? I don't see why we can't be black people. Mookie Best is the best player in the game. May not be true, but they do it all day, every day. So well, I don't see this the way. problem yeah. with we say the black ball players better. And just to prove your point, maybe the Dodgers would be in first place if Mookie had been playing. I mean, Mookie played all last year. As short a season as it was, and they won the World Series. This year he hasn't been, he's been injured and whatever, and they're fighting for a wild card. So it, uh, your point is proven. Again, I would implore anyone, if you are a baseball fan or not a baseball fan, there's all sorts of stuff out there about the Negro Leagues. You know, if, if, if I'm, I'll, give, I'll give all of our listeners a homework assignment tonight. Whether it be the internet, books, websites, or what have you, information is out there. If you really, 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 truly, you know, want to know more about that, about what the what the Negro League's contribution to baseball has been and still is, it's out there. It's out there. And yeah. you know, I think you can see the great thing, the great thing about what Ruth Foster and the other uh, folks of the Negro Leagues is, was their attitude was okay, you don't want us to play your game? Fine. We will play our own game and we'll be better at it. And they weren't. And I think that's sort of the attitude that you have to take now in a sense because you know, again, they weren't kept out of the game because of their talent. They were kept out of the game strictly because of the color of their skin. That's right. That's that's And see, that's something that baseball can't hide from. They can talk all flowery and, and all the whatever stuff, but, you know, and, and see, baseball likes to pick and choose their moments to uh, be historical. But, you know, one of the reasons why I say I don't, I don't, um, I don't acknowledge, I, I said this before and I'll say it again. That's I right. don't acknowledge, I don't acknowledge anything about Major League Baseball before April 15th, 1947. To me, if you want to put an asterisk, you start that asterisk right there and work your way down. But see, that takes away their, uh, that takes away Babe Ruth, that takes away Walter Johnson, that takes away uh, Ty Cobb and so many other quote-unquote players. And they don't want, right. and, and you know, they don't want you to, you know, take them, expunge them from the record books. But if you're going to take into the totality of baseball history, you have to remember that from the time that baseball, that from the time that Major League Baseball started, as we know it, in 1869, up until April 15, 1947, it was tainted because the best players were not all playing in the same league. And just so for for people who don't know that he's of course talk about that that date and when Jackie Robson came in into the league and and integrated the league if you want to call it that uh, Tony one final thing that came from uh, uh, Michael in Denver who said that you know he said your guest is talking about the difference between white sports fans and black sports fans he said you know white sports fans think they own the athletes. Black sports fans just want to watch the game. Yeah, you know, I can't. I, yeah, I can't. 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 Uh, I can't add more to that. I can't add more to that. I mean, it's it, and end of the 
end of the day, we look at it for what it is. Unfortunately, there's always been that sort of, um, you know, wanting to, you know, it's, it's, it's about control more than anything else. And this is not a Janet Jackson control. It's it's a it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a control thing, and you all you have to do is look at your history, whether it be sports, politics, uh, entertainment, or what have you. The one constant has always been white folks wanting to control anything and everything, and when they're not in control or when they feel they're not in control, they have a problem with it. Yeah, and then, and and you know you just look at the uh, the the brawl in Auburn Hills, and that you see a lot. Of, I went back and looked at that, and I, I you know we pay their salary and all this all this other crap that has, and they wannabes. They're fantasy football people. I'm not saying but they you know they fantasy football. They they play frisbee in high school and college. So now they see somebody on a football field in the NBA or baseball, then they think they own everything. Frisbee, I'm sorry, Frisbee um, people can get mad at me. It's not a sport. So if you play Whoever Frisbee said it was. Or, or, or Whoever said it was. World Whoever Series. said it was. Well, listen, a lot of World Series of Poker or something stupid like that, not a sport fans out there who I'm talking about. Uh, see, last question for you. On the field, uh, in, in the landscape of the AL and the NL, uh, you heard us talk previously about the San Fran clinching. Unfortunately, against your Mets, with clinching their, their first winning season in about five years. Uh, you look at the White Sox, is playing well, lights out. And then the, the AL East, the NL East. Uh, how many – what changes do you think will happen? What surprises you you'll think will happen down the stretch in either division and either um, – uh, I don't, I don't, I don't, are you talking about like who, who, who I think is going to win? I mean, I can't, I, I mean, know, I think that I, at, at this point, when you look at, uh, you know, the Brewers are light, lights out, the White Sox will win their division. We know that, but in terms of how uh, the vision and wild cards will change, what do you see? I, you know, like I said, I, I think whoever doesn't, I think whoever doesn't, well, I guess, you know, I think the Dodgers and Padres will um, fight it out for the in a wild card. Um, you know, the, uh, the, NL, the, NL, the NL East is still, you know, I think it's still still up in the air, although I think it may wind up being, I think if, if things keep going as it is, it's going to wind up being the two-team race, the uh, uh, Braves and Phillies. And... Um, Put it this way: the two best, you know, put a gun to my head. The two best teams in baseball right now are the Giants and the White Sox. And if right. that winds up being the World Series, I think it'll be a very good World Series. Now that doesn't mean everybody's gonna watch it, but I think it'll be a pretty, I think it'll be a pretty good uh, World Series. That's a great storyline. I mean, again, we're, we're baseball fans, so maybe I'm being a little too optimistic. But you got two teams that hadn't been. Anywhere sniffing anything about the World Series that that you know, that, that have a chance to to, to do something special. I, I don't see what the you know. 
You still, well, you know, just 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 remember, you still got you still have a whole, you still got all the stuff. You know, a lot of stuff can happen. It's it's, you know, we've seen teams come back from you know big deficits, and stuff can get crazy in September. And see, the difference this year is that, unlike these other years where you have all these call ups and you have a lot of, you're not going to get that this year. So teams are going to be playing. Now there's going to there's going to be some spoilers and all the other stuff, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, on the surface right now, we're looking at San Fran, Chicago. At the very, it, at the very, very least. Uh, my Yankees, has it been the the, the pitching? It's really been the difference in this streak. It's just been the pitching. Well, look, everybody goes through a stretch where you go to, you know, where things are all are, are clicking. You know, they, you know, they, they it, well, it took a while for them to get it, get it clicking, but. You know, you know, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a it's a thing of just being able to sustain it. Do I think they're going to win the World Series? No, they're not. They're not. Well, thank you for that um, uh, positive. No, yeah, hey, so, sorry, sorry. If you if you if you don't if you if you don't like the answer, don't answer the question. <laughs> T-Mac, before uh, we go, let people know how they can follow your writings and your website, sir. It's uh, www.basnnewsroom.com. We are on uh, Facebook at Still the Soul of Sports, and we're also at Instagram at BASN underscore newsroom. Love you, man. Appreciate you. Talk with you soon, okay? All right. Take care. Thanks, man. Tony T. McClain, of course, he is the editor-in-chief of uh, Black Athlete Sports Network. If you missed any part of our broadcast, make sure you go to our website and listen and enjoy. The show is on 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. rebroadcast. And, of course, it is on uh, 11 and 4 on Sunday. It's the Bachelor News at Airtime.pro, the Bachelor News at Airtime.pro. Not just sports, but we talk politics, uh, social issues, issues issues and everything else. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. L-A-Bachelor, B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R, 40 at gmail.com. Enjoy. We'll talk with you uh, uh, very soon on the Bachelor News Radio Show, Bachelor News Radio Network, WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, IBM TV and Big Mind Entertainment.
Party people in the house. 
was alright Trying to break out of the ghetto with a day-to-day fight Being down so long, getting up to the thoughts of mine I knew there was a better way of life and I was just trying to find You don't know what you do till you put on a pressure Across the 110th Street of a hell of a tester
has a negative vibe And if you're trying to make it, they only push you aside They really don't have no answer Ask them where they're going, they don't know 